continue this morning uh, as we have recommenced uh, last week, working our way through the book of Acts, which we will finish in memory in about eight weeks' time. And so let's come before God in prayer as we seek uh, his help. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are sovereign over all. We thank you that regardless of what we see around us, you are still the King of kings and the Lord of lords and nothing can take that away. We thank you that nothing that you plan to do is hindered by the events in this world or the plans of men. We thank you that your word is every bit as applicable to us today as it was the day in which it was written. And Lord, it's also as effective to bring about change in the lives of your people. And we ask that by your spirit that you be in at work in us to challenge us, correct us, encourage us. But most importantly, to change us that we might reflect you and bring you honour and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I was born in New South Wales. And I grew up there for 25 years. Well, actually... I lived there for 25 years. I don't know if I grew up at any stage during those 25 years. Now, I'd say in primary school I was a reasonably popular kid. But there were six days of every single year that I was not a popular kid. Even amongst my closest and dearest of friends. They were my opposition during those six days of the year. Those six days were the day of and the day after the three State of Origin games. As a fickle kid, I chose to support Queensland just because the players who played for Queensland were my favourite players. So I thought, I'm going to choose a superior team over my friends. To my mind, it was far more important to me to stick with the Maroons than it was to have the approval of my friends. Now, as we've had a couple of other people preach recently, we get together and we give them feedback on their sermon and I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say give myself my own sermon feedback and say, that is the worst sermon illustration I have ever given. I know I was told in my preaching classes, never say negative, anything negative about your own sermon in the sermon, but I'm going to say it's the weakest introduction I've ever given. Yeah, there's an underlying connection between the idea of whose honour are you really living for? Whose approval do you really want? But to kind of put that stupid example... In contrast to Paul standing for Christ and having crowds wanting to take his life, you've got to think, there's got to be a better introduction than that. Last week we finished off the end of chapter 21 and it was a chapter which had much celebration in it. There was great celebration as Paul came and reported the great work of God amongst the Gentiles of many are responding to the gospel in faith. And not only do the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Christian leaders celebrate alongside Paul and they say, and guess what? There have been thousands from amongst the Jews who have believed also. But the celebration became that little bit more complicated in verses 20 to 21. After saying thousands of these Jewish believers had come to faith in Christ, they went on to say, and they're all zealous for the law. And then on top of that, they've all been told that you, Paul, are opposed to the teaching of Moses and opposed to the customs of Judaism. Welcome to Jerusalem. Have a nice time while you're here. 
as Paul went through the ritual of, of trying to, to appease them, going through the purification process, going into the temple, helping these other four men go through their particular customs they were doing, as he was there inside the temple, the claims against him got even further. These men who opposed him cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. So we've just gone that step further. They're saying, this Paul who's in your midst hates Jews, hates the law, hates the temple. And this stirred up the crowds against him and they want him dead. They drag him out, they're ready to lynch him until the Roman authorities are the ones who intervene. They had to carry Paul into where they were going to question him just to protect him from the Jews who wanted him dead. During that process, Paul requests an opportunity to speak to the crowd. And because he was a Roman citizen, he was granted that privilege. And at a wave of a hand, this crowd that wanted him dead were willing to hear him out. It says at the end, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying. That was the, that was the last verse of our reading last week, so today we're going to find out what exactly he said and what was the response. We could kind of outline his, his description of his being zealous for Judaism in 1 to 5, his encounter with Jesus in 6 to 11, his call to serve Jesus in 12 to 21, his rejection by those he loves in verses 22 to 29, and then as we wrap it up, what does it mean to live for the approval of one? One thing we've seen very clearly Those who were gathered there in the temple that morning, they were violently opposed to Paul. But the same could not be said the other way around. Paul was not opposed to the crowds. We saw last week how he speaks about to the Roman church in chapter 9. He says, I've got great anguish in my heart for my fellow brothers and sisters Jews. He says, I wish I could even endure hell myself for all eternity if only they would be saved. And now as he addresses the crowd, he does so respectfully, gently and lovingly as brothers and fathers. In other words, dear my fellow family of of much-loved Jews, older and younger. And he begins to speak to them in what our Bible says is the Hebrew language, which most believed mean the language that the Hebrews spoke at that time, which predominantly was Aramaic. But whichever it was, you need to remember, the Romans who were present had no idea of the content of what Paul spoke. As Paul begins to address the crowd, you can't help but notice the first thing he says to them, I am a Jew. His first and foremost thing he says, and he wants to remind them, I am a Jew. The fact that I follow Jesus Christ, the fact that I testify to him being risen from the dead does not stand at odds to the fact that I am ethnically and proudly a Jew, Paul says. If anything, Paul would hope to show his fellow brothers and sisters 
that being a follower of Jesus is actually the legitimate continuation of where Judaism was headed. While Paul makes a sort of side reference to him being a Roman citizen born in Tarsus, before there's any opportunity for the people to say, ah, that's where you've got it wrong. Clearly you were brought up in a Roman environment, that's corrupted your thinking. He says, no, my upbringing was here, the holy city of Jerusalem. And not only was I brought up here in Jerusalem, but I was taught under Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, who was a, the most respected teacher in Judaism at the time, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council. So he grew up in Jerusalem. He had the highest level of education as far as Judaism could go. This Gamaliel we've described in chapter 5, verse 34 of Acts, says he is held in honour by all of the people. No one could question Paul's upbringing, his Jewish heritage, his claim when he says, I am a Jew, when they hear these things. His credentials are way beyond every single person who's in that crowd that he's speaking to. He goes on to say that he wasn't just credentials in his learning, but he was zealous in how he applied them. He says, I too have a zeal for God just like you do. It almost seems like he's being a little bit over-polite, saying these people who are calling for his death, he's saying they are doing that out of zeal for God. But I think the reason why he's quite happy to make that statement is because very, not very long ago, it was that exact same motive that Paul was believing he was doing the right thing to honour God by persecuting Christians. He understood that perspective. It's the same zeal that motivated him to do the things he did. But he says it wasn't just a theoretical zeal. I killed Christians. I arrested them. I persecuted them. And he says, if you want proof of it, you can go to the, some of the people that you are the most respected people in your eyes. You can ask the chief priest. You can ask the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and they will tell you about the way in which I zealously persecuted Christians. And as he was heading to Damascus, and here's something by way of sign of that zeal, just a casual 190 kilometre travel in order to arrest Christians, drag them back and have them imprisoned. He's well above his opponents here. They're gathered on this day. Raised in Jerusalem, better educated, is closely and personally known by some of the highest leading Jewish officials. Anyone who didn't know what had happened to Paul would be scratching their head at this point in time. It's like, is there something wrong here? Is there a reason why we're calling for the death of this guy? He sounds like a champion. And I think it's important to realise as we work our way through this chapter, the dramatic turnaround in Paul's life had nothing to do with the decision, the will or the initiative of Paul. The turn from his high credentials to his position now as a follower and a proclaimer of Jesus Christ, the crowd's got to be thinking, this guy better have a good reason to why he's made this transition. 
in verse 6 to 11, provides that reason of his encounter with Jesus. As Paul was on his way to Damascus to capture, persecute and imprison Christians, he was stopped in his tracks. It was broad daylight, yet a light flashed so brightly that led Paul blinded and he hears a voice which even those around him couldn't understand what was being communicated. Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's told this is Jesus, risen, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Why are you persecuting me? You see something how close Jesus is to his people? To persecute Christians is to persecute Christ who bought them at the price of his own death on a cross. Look at Paul's response. It's exactly the response of those who were gathered at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Paul says, what should I do? How do I respond? Because you can't encounter Jesus and stay the same. To encounter Jesus for yourself demands a response. Sure, some people's response will say, I reject him, I don't want anything to do with him. But others will say, my Lord and my God. For that moment, the only thing that he is told, what shall he do? He is told, go to Damascus, there you will be told what you shall do. And Paul goes. I want you to sort of grasp the the intensity of what's going on here. Paul hated Christians, hated people saying things about Jesus, proclaiming Jesus risen from the dead, yet in this one interaction... He completely turns around and willingly goes to Damascus ready to serve Jesus when he was planning on going to persecute people who were proclaiming Jesus. This is the same Saul that had proved of Stephen being killed, saying he was worthy of dying, being killed for proclaiming Jesus. Now with this encounter of Jesus, he's told he will receive instructions happily and totally walks in obedience. You can't say Paul just changed his mind about something. You can't say Paul came to a different conclusion on his own thinking. Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ which turned him around. This is the same Paul who was going to Damascus to lead Christians from there to get them persecuted. And he ends up, uh, ends up being Paul who was led to Damascus, ready to serve Jesus. As Luke recalls the events in Acts chapter 9, he also gives us the insight that Ananias receives a vision telling him that to go find this man Paul, who you'll find praying. But on this occasion, Paul is telling things from his own perspective where he just speaks of how Ananias came to him. But Ananias isn't just somebody that happened to be who God chose to use, but someone who God, in his knowledge of all things, specifically chose, who uniquely bolsters Paul's case. Remember what Paul is accused of? 
being opposed to the law, opposed to Jews, opposed to the temple. Yet this one whom God had chosen to meet with Paul was a man who's, who is regarded by all for his being devout to the law and is spoken well of by all of the Jews. So the second time we have another high-profile high person, a person respected within the Jewish community, who will bear witness to Paul and his change. This devout man's met Paul, he affirms him as a brother, and then gives this prophecy regarding Paul. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And why do you now wait? Rise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. From this devout man, respected by all of the Jews, he says, the God of our fathers, as in the God that these Jewish opponents who are claiming to zealously follow, this is his will, that you would know his will. The God of our Father's will for Paul is that he would proclaim what he has seen and heard to everyone. Specifically in Luke's record of it, in Acts chapter 9, he says that you would bear witness to Jesus before kings, before Gentiles, and before the children of Israel. Paul has just said, the God of your fathers, of those crowd gathered there, his will is for Jesus to be proclaimed as risen from the dead to all people, Gentiles, kings, the lot. It was also God's will that he would see the righteous one, a term that was used throughout the Old Testament, speaking of the Messiah. And Paul would be his witness to everyone. Paul has encountered Jesus personally. He's received a mission from God spoken through a, someone who's highly respected in the Jewish community through Ananias, saying this is God's will. It's totally clear that this isn't Paul's initiative. This isn't Paul's decision that's turned things around. This is God's initiative, God's will. Before his enemies can say, well, he was just deluded on the road, We have Ananias and we have one more. Verses 17 to 21 doesn't speak any longer about Gentile territory, but right in the heart of Judaism, in the temple itself, while Paul is praying. As Paul is praying in the temple, Jesus speaks to him, warning him to get out, saying that no one will believe him. In verse 18. And then even goes on further to say, and the risen Jesus said to Paul, I will send you to the Gentiles. Now Saul's response is far from perfect. Like his first response is, they're not going to oppose me. They know all this stuff that I've done. They're going to think this is great. But just think through what's happened through Paul's life to change his course. He's had the encounter with the living, resurrected Christ on the road. 
He's been told he has a purpose. He's found out what that purpose is through Ananias. And now even Jesus again, while praying in the temple, says to him, you will go to the Gentiles. God has turned Saul around, nothing else. And the God of the fathers, of all of the Jewish fathers, has appointed him to know his will, which is that Jesus, risen from the dead, would be proclaimed to all. Now the Jews had no issues with Gentiles becoming proselytes, that is, converting to become Jews. But for Paul to say it is God's will for Gentiles to be evangelised, brought into being children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, exactly on the same level as Jews, that was just too much for them to hear. And by implication of what Paul's saying, he's saying, I am in line with the will of the God of our fathers. And by implication, their opposition puts them outside of his will. Paul had their attention for most of it, but towards the end it just got that little bit too far for them to hear. The uproar begins again, people demanding his death, clothing and dust flying everywhere, probably his way of saying, this guy's a blasphemer, he deserves to die. And for the second week in a row we see the Jews wanting him dead and the Roman authorities, particularly the tribune, coming in to protect him. Now, you've got to remember, the Romans haven't understood a single word of what Paul has just said. But they have seen the reaction. They think, this needs to get sorted out. Now, Romans being Romans the way they were, they want to sort it out in good official Roman style. Let's get him flogged. That's a good way to ask questions of someone. For those of you who do our membership classes, when you have a membership interview, I promise there's no flogging in the process. And it's not until they've got him all chained up, about to flog him, that Saul asks the question, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen? There was a time back in Philippi where he, where he suffered and he could have pulled out the draw card of, I'm a Roman citizen, and he chose not to. The centurion takes the question back to the tribune who asked Paul about his citizenship. I think the tribune seems quite proud. It's like, yeah, I've got a citizenship too. I pay big bucks for it. And it was quite common at the time that you could actually pay a bribe to, be, to become a citizen. Now, it was quite expensive, but if you knew the right people, it was possible. But as Saul revealed that he had a citizenship from birth, in terms of his Roman authenticity, he was higher standing than the tribune himself. And we're told as a result, they immediately withdrew. Some might say a little bit, too immediately because in verse 29 our last verse that we had read he was bound then verse 30 the next verse says and the next day they unbound him so potentially they've just left him there overnight so what about what does it mean to live for the approval of one now we saw last week how much Paul loved the Jewish people the deep anguish in his heart that he wishes he himself could be be condemned in order that they might be saved. As Paul described his background and his strong Jewish roots, I reckon that just would have warmed their hearts at first to hear that and go, yeah! 
Everything right up until his encounter of Jesus would have been hero material. He's our man. They might have thought, this guy is living the dream. He's living everything I could ever hope for. And my opinion would be that I reckon if Paul just changed his mind, he's like, you know what? I'm going to go back to that stuff. I'm going to wipe out the Christians. Let's get, get on board with that again. I reckon they would have made him a poster boy. But Paul had an incredible zeal. But it wasn't an incredible zeal to please his fellow companions. It wasn't even his zeal to please those who he loved so dearly that he'd willing to be condemned on their behalf. He had a zeal for God, the same God of their fathers, who had revealed his will to Paul that he would bear witness to Jesus Christ to all people. And with his passion to serve God, do you ever stick out to you that Paul serves Jesus Christ without question? It wasn't as kind of like he's sitting on the fence about this Jesus thing. There was no one more violently opposed. But with his encounter of Jesus, he happily would serve him. There's never a moment where he says, Oh, but Jesus, I was in with the high priest and all the council of elders. I was making a name for myself. We should, we should really run with this. Later to the Philippians, Paul says, you know, all of those Jewish things that I once held dear that were once so special to me, he says, I count them as dung. I count them as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul loved his fellow Jews, but the only approval he sought was the approval of his God. He didn't want the approval of his peers. He wanted their salvation. Now we live in a country where you can be an esteemed hero by standing for things that are opposed to the will of God. You'll be put forward as being a, a great speaker, a great leader for this nation. Whether it's your views on marriage Abortion, euthanasia, the history of Jesus, the history of the Bible, anything. And the saddest part is in some Christian circles, people are held up as being heroes of liberty and freedom and truth for actually seeking the approval of the popular worldview as opposed to the approval of the God who has laid down the life of his son to purchase their salvation. But the challenge of this passage isn't what it says to everybody else around us. The challenge of the passage is, do I really live day by day in all of my thoughts, all of my decisions, to live for the approval of the one who has saved me? Because let's face it, the temptation is real. Everyone loves to be loved. Everyone loves to be respected, especially amongst those that we are closest to. But if your primary drive in life will be to seek the love, respect and admiration of others, your faithfulness to Jesus will always take a back seat. In our extended families, in our workplaces, 
We need God to help us that we might live in a way to bring glory to him, that we would want his approval to bring joy to him no matter what comes. Now, I've encountered people who seem to think that if they offend people, that somehow that's a sign that they're necessarily seeking the approval of God. You don't have to be offensive in it. Remember, Peter says, give an account of your faith with gentleness and respect. Paul doesn't address this crowd and say, you guys are all heretics. You're condemned, you're condemned, you're going to hell because you haven't trusted in Jesus. He addresses them, brothers and fathers. Out of love, he wants them to hear and to know the truth. We want that to be true of our heart, that we want to bring glory and honour for his approval. Because we can say, God, you are my Lord, you are my Saviour, you are more precious to me than anything else. It's nice to hear, oh, that, that guy's a nice bloke, that person's great, but it's nothing in comparison to hearing that voice from the eternal God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and confess that so often it is easy to be directed by the responses we see around us. Lord, sometimes we become very familiar with how you died on a cross for us, that it almost in in our mind has lost something of its value. But we pray that we would never consider your salvation as something common or something to play down. But Lord, that we might be so changed by it that we might seek in every single aspect of our life to want to live for your honour and glory, to bring you joy. Because you are the one who has given us life where we had no life, where we had no hope. Give us a heart for those around us who do not yet know you. Not to speak harshly or unnecessarily offensively, but to grieve, to have anguish in our heart for them and to hold out the wonderful hope that is available to them in Christ. In whose precious name we pray. Amen.